welcome back to the Entertainment Goes Pop podcast, where all things entertainment cross over with all things pop culture, meaning all topics are fair discussion, including TV, movies, music, sports, video games. All of it is discussed on this podcast. On this week's episode of the podcast, a lot of different topics this week, including Survivor, the Scream trailer being released, Drama Queens talking to Paul Johansson, 90210 remembering Luke Perry. That 70s show has a spinoff coming up on Netflix, which will be that 90s show. William Shatner goes to outer space. My in-depth thoughts and spoiler thoughts on the Ted Lasso season finale and season two as a whole. And more on this week's episode of the podcast. much calmer episode of Survivor this week as we didn't have as many advantages and twists being thrown at us just constantly through the episode as we have been in the previous weeks so far. This was much much more of an older school feel as far as it's weird that I say older school feel because it's you know just a normal feel I guess. But you know I've said in previous podcasts just how many times that they're throwing so many advantages and takeaway votes and add a vote. And it's just really hard to keep up with. That's kind of how I've been feeling about this season so far. But this was a much calmer episode of Survivor last night and a very enjoyable one as well as there was quite a bit going on. So this episode opened up with fallout of the previous Tribal Council where Brad was sent home with the with the Tribal Council vote Jeannie not happy at all with the results of this as she was left out of the vote and left out of the happenings that was going on and she was definitely vocal about that she was kind of blindsided as well. Shan tells Jeannie that Brad had confided in her of the secret advantage that he had but this was something that Brad had not shared with Jeannie. So that's one reason Shan gave on why this all went down. But one thing, this this upsets JD quite a bit because if you remember, Shan was upset at JD in last week's episode over him not sharing the info on his advantage to the point of JD giving her his advantage to hold onto is like a make good. You know, and he says to Shan in this uh, in this moment, he says, you were mad at me over keeping info from you, but you were keeping info to yourself too. And she uh, she kind of made this comment of like, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's helps my game or so. I can't remember the, like what the words were, but she kind of blew it, blew off the comments that that he had, which, yeah, I can see JD's uh, point here. And, I, and I'm sure she could see the point too, where she's trying to figure out kind of how she's going to get out of that situation. And he does get his advantage given back to him as a result of this. And we get to the first reward challenge of the season. The story of this challenge is Luvu's first loss as a tribe. This is the first challenge that they have lost. And it's also the bigger story is the story of Heather's struggle here being the one that couldn't get past one part of the challenge, the whole tribe had to get through this one part and she couldn't do it. 
and it's so weird. It's like I wasn't even very familiar with Heather as the show just really has not shown a lot of her yet in the edit. So this was almost like kind of blitzing us here with a intro to Heather almost where, you know, this was kind of our introduction to her and then seeing her struggle in this situation. So Ua wins easily, and their reward was a local from Fiji would arrive at their camp for a lesson on how to live off of the land there, which he, that guy was incredible, <laughs> what he was able to do. And as far as going back to Luvu, after the challenge ends right at that moment, uh, Heather immediately just sobs on the ground over costing her tribe the win. And Danny especially is leaned down right in front of her, just comforting her, encouraging her, while they all tell her how she never gave up. And that's one thing they keep trying to encourage her with is, yeah, you struggled, but you never gave up. You kept fighting. You could have given up and you didn't. And they're just trying their hardest to pep her up and help her through that. And it was just a very nice and just cool situation there from the rest of the tribe to help her out. So next comes the talk from Luvu about what to do with their next challenge with the immunity challenge. And Erica says she is good with losing the next immunity challenge, wanting to get someone out from her own tribe. And she's ready to go after Sydney here and tells this to Deshaun. And of course, he relays this to Sydney. And one thing we see here is that Sydney thinks a lot of herself in this game with uh, her interview to the cameras telling us that she is the threat of threats, good looking and a physical threat. So she, I could definitely see Sydney being set up here in the edit to be a villain here. Just with that particular edit, it kind of feels like that's the way we're going to go here with Sydney. So now Sydney is ready to go after Erica after learning that Erica wants to come after her. Deshaun, he is not feeling Erica either. So Deshaun and Danny discuss throwing the next immunity challenge to vote out Erica. Now, obviously, we know throwing challenges can backfire significantly in the game of Survivor as shown in Survivor history. There have been many times where tribes have thrown these things and it has come back to bite them hard. But they are ready to do it. They're ready to give this a try. And they try hard to throw it. Very, very hard. To the point of frustration when Deshaun and Danny are moving so slow. Now I want to point out too, not the whole tribe is trying to throw this thing. It's pretty well Danny and Deshaun. And I guess Erica to an extent. But the attention of the edit is definitely on Danny and Deshaun. And they are moving so slow through this challenge, and they are still beating Yase, who is still dragging in the back. And it's it's so funny because they're just so beyond frustrated that they are this the other tribe is this bad that they are still winning despite how slow they are moving. Now another problem that they have is that Nasir isn't in on the plan to throw this. And obviously he doesn't know that this is a thing and he's looking to win. And he is looking to single-handedly win it himself. And he steps up helping them in the early part. And there's even a comment, you know, with the others 
where they're just like, man, we're just trying so hard to shove these blocks through so slowly. And this Nasir's coming in. He's just like shoving them through, like with all his might, trying to win this challenge. And we get to the moment to where they were tossing the rings and Deshaun is purposely missing. And Nasir asks if he needs to jump in and replace him to try to help to win this. And when one of Deshaun's rings roll off, rolls off of the platform, uh, Deshaun chases it. And this allows Nasir just the few seconds that he needs to jump in there and replace him and keep throwing the rings. I mean, it's like Deshaun can't just throw him out and just be like, no, 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 I got this. You know, he, you, what do you do? You know, what do you do in that situation? So now this allows Nasir the opportunity to try to win this. And, of course, he gets rolling right away, and he gets them immunity. So this ends up with Yase, and I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, because it's Yasa, Yasa, it's Yasa. This is why I don't normally name the tribe names. I find a lot of people on Twitter do this, too, where they just, like, yellow, green, because so many of these tribe names are so hard to, like, lock in your brain and get the pronunciation of them right. So a lot of what I see on Twitter is like yellow tribe and green tribe and purple tribe, which I fully support. But Yasa and Luvu are safe here. Ua is going to be the ones going to tribal council. Now, JD at one point for Ua, of course, he's already got a target on him anyway. But there's one point in this uh, challenge, and this goes back to, I believe it was last week, where he was trying to be like real like full style where he was throwing the bags up in the air and he was like trying to do like a basketball floater <laughs> kind of with it and it was getting on the tribe's nerves where they're just like quit trying to do it with finesse and just get the job done so at one point he's up there throwing the rings and he throws one and he yells money and it misses <laughs> and it goes right off and Shan has a really funny interview later where she says, uh, she says this line, JD wants to be the superstar and he's so concerned about looking like Allen Iverson saying money and it doesn't land. There was no money there. You should have shot it up there and said tribal because that's where you ended up. <laughs> I thought that was a really great line. I laughed out loud at that line last night. So Jeannie realizes that she is in trouble here and discusses using her shot in the dark advantage to where you can roll a die and you could have like a one in however many uh, chance, number chance to try to save yourself. So Shan is concerned on JD and Jeannie working together. So Shan decides that she is going to come up with a plan to be paranoid and go to JD about, you know, I'm so paranoid, or not saying I'm so paranoid, but that she thinks JD is coming after her. Now, JD reads that as paranoia. So she does go to JD and tells him that she feels like that he is targeting her, to which JD is shocked about. And he's just like, what is, what is her problem? Like, I'm not coming after her. And her plan is to get JD to hand his advantage over to her once again as a make good. And he does again. After last week where it was just such like the mistake and he survived it, he hands it over to her again to where all of us at home are going, no, what are you doing? Don't do that. So however her target 
is JD, and now she has his advantage. And this all happens. This all happens with her doing like her mischief theme song that she hums to herself, which is really funny. I laughed out loud at that as well. Uh, I think I laughed more at the song the second time with this episode more than I did the first time. The first time it was just it was there and it was funny, but the second time was even funnier because her face is just so great when she's doing it. Just just clever. It's good editing. So we get to Tribal Council, and Jeannie knows that she is in trouble, and she talks of using her shot in the dark, to which JD encourages her not to do, saying, everything will be fine as long as everyone does what they are supposed to do. And he looks over, and he winks over at Shan and Ricard. You know, basically like, hey, we're good. Let's do this. The vote happens. Jeannie does not use her shot in the dark. And JD is not good. He gets blindsided and voted out. So Shan took her shot at JD here and did it with his extra vote advantage in her pocket. Cutthroat move here from Shan. Early in the game, these are some very cutthroat moves that she is making in this game. So curious to see how this continues to work out for her as the game evolves to where if See if she settles in or if she keeps making these strong, like bold cutthroat moves here because, you know, JD was was with her. So this was kind of like the equivalent of her taking out like somebody that was like a teammate to her, you know, somebody that was with her and was looking to work with her. So that is how it worked out this week. We'll have to see how things play out next week. And it does look like we're going to maybe get some more advantage stuff going again next week. So it may get uh, crazy again, just kind of based on the previews. We may get a lot of advantage twist going on again next week. One thing that has been really anticipated this week was the trailer for the new Scream movie being released. And of course, it was released this week. Trailer looks pretty awesome. And we're getting our first look at kind of what this movie is going to be like. We're also seeing our first look at the returning actors and characters that have been so familiar with this series of movies, including Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. All are who are going to be involved. We had the original three movies, as you remember, and then we had Scream 4 back in 2011. Now, this will be the first Scream movie not to be directed by Wes Craven, who passed away in 2015. And he was very missed on set by the originals as they shot this movie. The directors of this movie are Matt Bettinelli-Open and Tyler Gallette. Kevin Williamson is going to be involved as an executive producer. And they talked about how the original cast members, talking about Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette, were very non-committal at first when they talked about making a new Scream movie. And because they just didn't know if they wanted to be involved without Wes Craven. And they didn't know really if they wanted to jump on board with this. And in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Galette talked about this, and this was the quote he had. He said it was a wildly anxiety-producing situation. They were not disposable roles. They were very, very important in the heartbeat of what was great about the script. We couldn't imagine the movie without any of them, and so not having them perfectly locked in right off the bat was definitely scary. Now, Nev Campbell talked about this, and she said in the interview, 
I genuinely was in two minds. The idea of making these films without Wes Craven seemed challenging to me. I love the man very much, but Matt and Tyler wrote me a letter speaking of their appreciation and great respect for Wes Craven and speaking of the fact that the very reason that they are directors today was because of these movies and because of Wes, and that meant a great deal to me. Getting Kevin Williamson involved was also clearly something that was important to this cast as well, as David Arquette talked about this in his part of the interview too. This is what Arquette had to say to Entertainment Weekly, saying, Knowing that Kevin Williamson was an executive producer on it set me at ease. He really knows the tone. I mean, he set the whole world up. So as far as the like the plot details, it was, I think, and it's always kind of been this way with the movies over the years to where they really try to keep the plot tight within because you obviously don't want that out. Uh, Galette talked about how the cast members were kept in the dark about a lot of the important details of the script, uh, at least during the early days of the shoot. And this is what he had to say to Entertainment Weekly. He said, we were really careful to protect the big reveal of the movie. We went as far as to withhold these moments in the script from the actors. We wanted everybody involved to the degree that we could to be a part of the whodunit. Obviously, you get to a point in the shoot where you have to let the cat out of the bag, but we went pretty far into prep and into production with a surprising amount of secrecy maintained. So, I mean, that's always been a big deal with Scream over the years, again, to where they want to keep it tight. And that's part of the mystery of these movies over the years. And I saw, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I believe, but I saw the first Scream in the theaters, uh, I don't know, pretty early on from when it was released, probably within the first couple of weeks that it was out. And I remember, you know, me and my friends all sitting there and me and my, me and one of them all through the movie, we were leaned over to one another and whispering, oh, that's it. That's, that's the killer. That's, that's who did it. And I think by the end of the movie, we had every single person pegged. At some point during that movie, every character, we had said, that's the person. Yeah, they they did it. (laughs) And maybe even some of them twice. Uh, So it's pretty funny. And that's that's part of the greatness of, of the Scream movies. And one thing that's very interesting to watch them do as these movies have come out over different eras, is watching how they take the modern technology and play it into the new movie. Like, you know how it was back in the 90s with the originals, where it's, you know, it's a landline, answering machines, you know, just very, you know, technology light even with that. As we got to Scream 4 in 2011, it was interesting watching how they brought in text messages and different things like that and smartphones. Now, with this trailer, I definitely noticed like the the beginning of it, and it's very similar looking to like the Drew Barrymore opening from the very first movie, uh, to where you've got this girl being chased by Ghostface first thing. 
But the first thing I noticed was it's like, okay, here's just like the differences with the phone and things that they're using with the phone and technology. But they're also using like there was like where Ghostface was hacking the home security system. And it's just cool how the different eras of this series of movies, how they've been able to evolve the technology to go with it. I just think that's very cool. January 14th, 2022 is going to be your release date for the new Scream movie in theaters. I'm definitely going to check it out. This is a genre that I'm really just, I don't pay any attention to anymore. Just grew out of it. I watched some scary movies and things when I was a teenager and everything and kind of watched more of it then. But Scream was the last series of movies that I watched in that genre so anytime that pops back up, I tend to jump back in just because I want to continue the series and see how it plays out. So it's like this is the one series. Actually, it really is the only like scary movie series that will make me watch. I don't think there's any others I'll watch. None of them. Yeah, Scream is the only one that will make me kind of keep that toe in the water to where I just want to continue to see what they do because I did watch Scream 4 back in 2011 because I wanted to see what they did with it with bringing it back I wanted to see what that was going to be like so I'm definitely going to check it out it's it had a lot of buzz this week the trailer had a lot of people excited so I'm curious to see how that goes another movie trailer that was released this week was from Disney Plus and that was for Home Sweet Home Alone which is going to be the remake of the original movie Home Alone. And, you know, I watched the trailer, and when you see the trailer, it's just Home Alone. With It just looks like somebody recreated Home Alone. That's just exactly what it looks like. There's, it doesn't... There's a few twists on the story where it looks like the parents head to like Japan. I think it was Japan where they end up. So at least they sent them way further away. So I guess there's that. But the story is exactly the same. It's just like little things added. I just don't really understand why we needed a Home Alone remake. I don't think really anybody does. I did notice like on their promotional material that at least they embrace that a little bit with the saying with one of the taglines that was on it said uh, classics were made to be broken. So I get that they're, they're self-aware of this, but uh, I don't know. It just, it feels like it's just Disney plus using this to get some attention to where people will look at it and say, Oh, look, home alone. We love home alone. Let's watch another Home Alone movie, but the thing is they're watching the same Home Alone movie with just different different actors and just the slightest bit of different story. Now, maybe the story does have a little more difference to it, but when you watch the trailer, it's exactly the same story, but just with a different, different family, different, I don't know, I'm sure probably like the villains you know, robbing the house, they'll probably have like a different background story or something. And we already see where the parents, you know, leave him alone and they go to a different place than the original. But I don't know. It's, I just don't feel the need (laughs) to, uh, 
to watch. This is going to be released on Disney Plus on November 12th, right in time for the holiday season, which I'm sure that is what they want. The relaunch of Saved by the Bell Season 2 is going to be released on November 24th on Peacock streaming service. It's going to be released on Thanksgiving weekend, just like it was last year. There is a new trailer that they have put out announcing the date, and they also include a look back at the season, a look back at Season 1, and then a, there's a little bit of a preview of Season 2. Nothing really dramatic in the preview giving us much, but I'm sure probably as we get closer to time, we'll get something a little more detailed for Season 2. But November 24th, Say by the Bell on Peacock streaming service. The Beverly Hills 90210 cast this week remembered Luke Perry on what would have been his 55th birthday. Just a lot of good tributes that were coming in from from his former cast members. You know, I'm going to read through several of these where Ian Ziering posted, you know, Miss You Pal, Happy Birthday LP, and Brian Austin Green posting one that said, Miss You Always. Jason Priestley posted, Today would have been Luke Perry's birthday. I miss you, my friend. There will never be another. And Jenny Garth posted, Miss you, my friend. Tori Spelling wrote up this really sweet post I'm going to read here. She said, Happy birthday to my friend and brother Luke. You are missed so much. Not a day goes by that I don't think about you. You are one of a kind. I remember meeting you as a young, insecure teen girl. You were the first boy to ever make me feel worth as a human, a female, and a comedian. As a friend and big brother, you stood up for me fiercely, went to brawl literally for me when I was in a verbally abusive relationship, and sat and talked me through the most insecure moments of a teen angst girl's life. I'll forever be Camel, the name you nicknamed me because of my long eyelashes. You had a way of making every single human feel confident, heard, and special the minute they met you. Your energy was pure, selfless love, a giver in this un ungiving life. Your loving nature carried through decades, loved getting texts and calls asking about my kids and always ending with Uncle Luke loves them. As a parent, you defined hands-on, always putting Jack and Sophie first, loved showing off pics of Jack wrestling and the purses and pieces Sophie designed and crafted, always saying T.U. and Soph would hit it off DIYing together. Two regrets I have. We never had that Taco Tuesday family night at your house. I heard your tacos were the best. And then I couldn't fulfill your vision and dream of our cast doing that horror film you were so passionate about making with them. Sorry both those things never happened. Today and every day we all miss you and hold you in our hearts. Everyone does. You made quite the impression on this lifetime, Lukey. Just a very awesome post there from Tori Spelling. It just still blows my mind that Luke Perry is gone. You know, just... One of my favorites of all time. I just wish he was still around. And there's just so many great stories that are told about Luke on the 90210 MG podcast that Tori Spelling and Jenny Garth do. They've told so many great Luke stories and so many guests that come on there tell so many stories. So if you want to hear some great Luke Perry stories, go listen to that podcast. There's, there's so many great memories that they share about him. 
onto another podcast here, the Drama Queens podcast, which is, of course, the One Tree Hill podcast with Hillary Burton, Sophia Bush, and Bethany Joy Lenz, where they're looking back on One Tree Hill episode by episode doing a rewatch, which I'm doing as well. I'm also watching these episodes week by week with them and then using the podcast as a companion piece here to get the stories and hear what they have to say about the episodes. It's very, very fun. I've been wanting to do a rewatch of that show for a long time, and this was really just the perfect time to do it and hear their take on everything. They had Paul Johansson on recently, of course, played Dan Scott, one of the biggest villains ever in TV history, and Paul Johansson, he's just always so good in these interviews. I just always enjoy his stories and just comes across so great. And he talked about just how he wasn't sure how to play the character of Dan Scott at first because he didn't want to play it as just just super villain. You know, he wanted there to be more layers to it. And he talked about how he wanted to play it and he did play it from very early on that deep down he loved both of his sons, but he just didn't show it. And one thing that I liked that he mentioned that is very true, if you really watch Dan Scott over the years, he talked about how being humiliated was the worst thing that could happen to Dan Scott. Like, he he always put up this real tough persona, and he was always just out for himself, and, you know, just doing things just so mean and just villain, you know, and things like that. But he, the biggest thing you could always see over the run of the series was he could never stand being humiliated. Anytime he was humiliated, you saw, saw the whole demeanor change. And so hearing him talk about that, I thought it was very true. He shared a lot of good stories about just what it was like to play such a villain of a role, but yet be out amongst the public who couldn't separate the character from him as an actor. And he said that you would just be amazed at how many people would come up to him and just hated him immediately. And he's just like, hey, I'm just a guy. <laughs> you know, just, just an actor playing this role. And Sophia Bush told a story where she said she was walking down the street with him at one point while they were doing the show in that era. And while the show was still on. And she said some woman passed them on the sidewalk and looked at him and said, you... And they're, and they're what, like, oh, okay. And he, she pulled her bag and started hitting him in the arm with her bag and saying how, you are such a bad dad. You're such a bad dad. And hit him. And they were just, like, shocked. And Sophia talked about how she just watched, watched Paul, like, figure out how to handle this situation to where you could see that he understood. It's like he didn't want to be mean back. He wanted to try to be nice and he understood that she was mad over the role and things like that. And that he was trying to process how to handle this situation. And she said that Paul actually winked at the lady and said, I am a bad dad. And immediately won the woman over like with the, that like Dan Scott type of wink and I am a bad dad, and completely won this woman over. It was just like, oh, you know, and just started, like, 
her whole tone her whole tone changed with him and just like that situation she said that it was just so interesting to see how he could take the situation and turn it around to where by the end of it she was charmed by him just like Dan Scott would have charmed this woman so and one thing he talked about too he told a story about where he was on a plane one time and that there was somebody sitting across from him and saw that it was him and asked to be moved to another seat because they were scared of him and didn't want to sit across from him. And he said, you know, there was, he said it really stung him a little bit, you know, to where uh, just there were times where people could not separate the character from the man, you know, it's like, he's just an actor playing this role. But I've always thought that so many times where, because he was so unlikable on that show. And you hear about that so many times. Well, you know, I talked about 90210 on uh, the, just a second ago, Jamie Walters on there, when he played on that show, he was so hated among 90210 fans because of that character that he played and where he had abused Donna. And people would come up to him on the street and be rough with him. And it really, and he also had a music career and it really squashed his music career because people hated him so much from the show that it messed up his music career. And it's always so wild when you see these people that play just so terrible of people on TV and it plays over into their real life to where people can't separate the two. I always find that so wild. And I, I've always been interested to hear Paul Johansson's stories on what it must have been like to be out and about while One Tree Hill was just at its peak fandom and to be approached by people in the street, you know, like that. So uh, if you want to hear that, it's uh, it's about two weeks ago, two, three, yes, yeah, two weeks ago when uh, he was on the podcast. You can look that up, Drama Queen's podcast with Paul Johansson. Very, very interesting. Jeopardy champion Matt Amodio's 38-day winning streak on Jeopardy ended this week. He finishes as the third highest regular season earner ever with $1,518,601. I actually did see his final episode this week because occasionally I just tune in and see how he was doing and just see it on the TV. And actually the episode before this, he won by a lot. And I thought, man, it's going to be hard to knock him out because he's just really, really good, really smart, knows a lot of things about a lot of different categories. And it's just crazy how much he knew about a variety of things. And I looked at this episode and I turned it on and I thought, man, he's down quite a bit here. And he was losing to both of them. And he went into Final Jeopardy in third place. And the only chance he had was if he risked it all and then won while the others risked a ton and lost. He got the final Jeopardy question wrong, but even if he had risked it all and gotten it right, the other two still would have beaten him risking and also getting it right, because they were just that much further ahead. An amazing run from him, and just such a likable guy. Um, I, I don't watch Jeopardy a whole lot. It's mostly just if I'm flipping channels and I see it on. 
but I've really enjoyed watching him. Just a real class guy. It's real cool seeing him and just awesome run by him. So that 90s show has been ordered by Netflix. This is going to be a spinoff of the big hit in the 90s of that 70s show. Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp are going to be returning for the series. It is going to be 10 episodes. It is going to be set in 1995. Leah Foreman is going to be the center character of the show who will be the daughter of Eric and Donna. She goes to visit her grandparents for the summer in Point Place, Wisconsin. Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner, who are the original series creators, along with their daughter, Lindsay Turner, are going to be the writers and executive producers. That 70s show alum, Gret Mettler, will also be writing, executive producer, and showrunner. So this is going to be, I don't know when the launch date's going to be. It sounds like it's very, very early on into this. So if you're a fan of that 70s show, that is something for you to look forward to that will be coming up. William Shatner went to outer space this week, 90 years old, making him the oldest person to go into space. He rode along with Audrey Powers, Chris Boschhausen, and Glenn DeVries, and they were aboard Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin rocket. It actually reached 100 kilometers. The whole thing was 11 minutes as far as the trip from launch to return. They had three minutes of weightlessness, and... I, did, I didn't see it live. I watched the replay of it because I wanted to uh, see how it went and just hear like all the perspective on it. And Shatner's interview after it was really just pretty amazing to listen to. He was just so overwhelmed with emotion as he talked about his trip up to space. And I thought I would read some of the things that he had to say about his experience. He said, everybody in the world needs to do this. Everyone, everybody in the world needs to see it was unbelievable. I mean, the little things, the weightlessness, and to see the blue color whip by, and now you're staring into blackness. That's the thing. This covering of blue is this sheet, this blanket, this comforter of blue around that we have around us. We think, oh, that's blue sky, and suddenly you shoot through it all, all of a sudden like you whip a sheet off when you're asleep and you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness, and you look down, there's the blue down there and the black up there. And there is Mother Earth and comfort. And is there death? Is that the way death is? It was so moving to me, this experience. It was something unbelievable. Yeah, weightlessness, my stomach went out. This was so weird, but not as weird as the covering of blue. This is what I never expected. It's one thing to say, oh, the sky, and it's fragile. And it's all true, but what isn't true, what is unknown until you go to space, is this pillow. There's a soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color, and it's so thin, and you're through it in an instant. How thick is it? Is it a mile? And Bezos said back to him, he said, the atmosphere, it depends on how you measure because how it thins out, maybe 50 miles. And Shatner said back, so you're 50 miles. So you're through 50 miles. Suddenly you're through the blue and you're in the black. It's mysterious and galaxies and things, but what you see is black. And what you see down there is light. And that's the difference. What you've given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. It's extraordinary. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel now. I don't want to lose it. It's so much larger than me in life. It hasn't got anything to do with a little green and blue orb. It has to do with the enormity 
and the quickness and the suddenness of life and death. It's unbelievable. So that's what some of Shatner's, that was uh, the transcript of what was being said where him and Bezos were talking right outside the rocket there. Or not outside the rocket, the thing that they come back down in after they landed. And they talked for, I don't know, what, 10 or 15 minutes probably, where he was just completely overwhelmed. It's uh, it's very cool. If you want to, you can find it online, look it up on YouTube. If you want to hear what all he had to say from... Uh, you know, the full, the full detail It's pretty wild. I mean, it's because I wanted to hear what he had to say, you know, like immediate reaction to experiencing that. Just, just wild. Storm Rising, a new show that is airing on the National Geographic channel involves Reed Timmer. Of course, I've watched Reed Timmer and his storm chasing for well over 10 years now. I used to watch the show that he was involved with, Storm Chasers, that aired, I believe it was on Discovery Channel, that that aired on back in the day. Of course, he's been all over online all over the years, and just countless amounts of footage and video of coverage that he's done, uh, chasing tornadoes and all storms. So, Great to have him back on TV. Of course, this airs Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Central Time on National Geographic Channel, where Reed and his friend Mike chase storms. Now, Reed is more the tornado chaser of the bunch. Mike is more on chasing hurricanes, but the longtime friends, you know, they come together and they chase chase each of them together. I liked last week's episode with Gizmo. We see a lot of Gizmo on his uh, social media, on Reed's uh, social media. It's his dog, his little dog, that uh, storm-chasing dog that uh, goes along with him. Every time I see a picture, I'm like, Gizmo! So it's good to see Gizmo get some airtime on this last week's episode. It was a really good, intense episode. Reed uh, got in a tornado this past week and intercepted. And it was a fun chase with Reed and Mike where they were trying to battle getting to the storm but they were also battling their gas tank to the point where i just thought i wasn't sure that they were going to make it i thought for sure they were going to run out of gas but they did get to the storm and also got to the gas station afterwards so now this week's episode is going to have them getting into hurricane laura which was category four storm and this this series here is covering the 2020 storm season so just an incredible show of course i'm always been fascinated with storm chasing and things like that so watching this show when i heard this was coming up when reed posted hey the show i'm involved and it's going to be airing at this time i thought oh yeah i'm definitely (laughs) going to be into this so very very cool and of course i again i enjoyed storm chasers back in the day so very fun to have read back on my tv i'm enjoying mike as well i wasn't as familiar with mike so they're a fun team they're a really fun team i've enjoyed checking them out little sports here the wnba finals are underway between the phoenix mercury and the chicago sky game two was last night just incredible overtime game between those two teams Brittany griner with a big dunk in the first half and i thought that highlight will be everywhere Diana Taurasi just hitting so many big shots, including an and one on a three-pointer uh, to where I was fist pumping on because I'm a Diana Taurasi fan. So seeing her hit that shot was really, really awesome. 
uh, Phoenix got rolling in the early part of the overtime, and they looked like they were going to have the momentum. And I thought, well, they're getting ready to roll Chicago probably here in this overtime, and they've just got all the momentum. And then Chicago just stormed right back and erased that lead really quickly. And it went right down to the wire. Of course, Candace Parker is just just a monster of a player, too. And I'm enjoying watching just these really two talented teams go at it. And, of course, Phoenix pulled away late in the game last night. And they tied the series at one. So really looking forward to seeing how the rest of this series plays out. And, of course, NBA opening night is coming up Tuesday, October 19th on TNT. Your doubleheader is going to be Brooklyn and Milwaukee starting at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. That will be ring night for the Milwaukee Bucks. And 9 p.m., Lakers-Warriors, which will be interesting game coming off of that preseason game this week. As it, was, it didn't look very good for the Lakers. The Warriors, of course it's preseason, but... The Warriors were playing hardly anybody. Like, all their stars were down. They put the graphic up at one point, and I thought, man, they really aren't playing anybody tonight. And I think the Lakers were pretty well playing everybody. So, I don't know. We'll have to see how the Lakers do with this new lineup. They've added a lot of players. And, of course, Golden State's, you know, they're going to get Klay Thompson back at some point this season and hope to see him just come back and play well. You know, it's just that was so sad seeing him go down with an injury again last year, just when he was ready to come back. You know, it's that's hard watching that. Of course, I'm a Bulls fan. Bulls are 3-0 and in the preseason. They made a lot of moves in the offseason that I've been very happy about. This team just looks so much better, and it's been exciting to watch. I'm just, I don't know, I'm very excited to see how they play this season. Very pumped. Ready for this NBA season to get started. I've watched a ton of preseason basketball over the last week. And almost every night I think I've watched preseason, as long as there was some on. Just because I'm so ready for it. But yeah, NBA season tips off Tuesday, October 19th on TNT. So let's talk about what so many people are talking about, and that is the Ted Lasso Season 2 finale. I'm going to say right now, this is going to contain full spoilers on Ted Lasso. If you have not watched the finale, you do not want to listen to the rest of me here. This is going to be the last thing on the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you don't want to hear the spoilers, if you're not a Ted Lasso watcher, and you're kind of eh on the show, stop listening anyway and go and watch it. Trust me, you're going to love this show. Don't listen to me give you spoilers. Even if you're on the fence or if you haven't even heard of this show, it airs on Apple TV+. Plus. Get you a one-month subscription. Binge watch it. It's awesome. But I'm going to talk spoilers here on Ted Lasso. So if you do not want to know Ted Lasso spoilers, now's the time to quit listening. So that was a lot that happened in that season finale. And we definitely got the Darth Vader <laughs> story of Nate. Whew. Man, it's season two 
has definitely been the downfall and the evolution to the dark side of Nate. And one thing I was going to, I think I'm going to start with this and go through this and I'm going to go back and discuss it. Nick Muhammad, who plays Nate on the show, he posted something on Twitter talking about the story of Nate. And I'm going to read everything he had to say on this post and then I'll go back and discuss it. So, this is what he had to say. Me, again, contains spoilers, so maybe don't read until you've watched the season finale, but here are a few thoughts on Nate and responses to your tweets. So, the first time we ever see Nate, he's shouting at Ted. The roast from season one is fun and taken in good spirits, but you can see how much of a kick Nate gets out of laying into the players. It's payback time. When Nate first believes he's been fired at the end of season one, he turns on Rebecca and calls her a shrew, a first glimpse into his nasty side. The hair color change was deliberate. I have flecks of gray that were painted out in season one and were painted more and more gray as season two progressed. It's a wig by the very end, thanks to Nikki Austin and Alexis Dolman for making this happen. In the way bitterness, guilt, shame, and stress can often change someone's appearance, they thought it would be fun to track Nate's spiral in this way. In my head, Nate was transforming into Jose Morarino? I don't know that I don't know that name, so if that rings with y'all, hopefully you understand that. I don't know the I don't know that there. Going back to what he said, a lot of the key beats in Nate's season two journey are unheard, unseen, or dialogue free, but they were all scripted, including the spitting. Yuck. Speaking of which, when Nate spits, he's both physically and metaphorically spitting at himself. Deep down, I think and hope he hates what he's becoming, though whether he will be truly redeemed, I genuinely don't know. The opening and closing shots of season two are the same, but in the final shot, the light in Nate's eyes has supposedly gone out. Also scripted. The only scene solely between Ted and Nate in season two is in episode 12. The last scene before this was when Ted apologized for snapping at Nate in season one, just before Nate delivers the roast in episode seven. Brilliant job by the writers on showing rather than telling just how abandoned Nate feels. Similarly, when Beard calls out Nate on his behavior against Colin in episode 7, Nate's first reaction is to ask whether he told Ted. Ted is largely unaware of Nate's downfall until he receives the text at the end of episode 11. Not to condone Nate's subsequent behavior or attitude, but season 2 is jammed full of microaggressions against Nate. From Ted laughing at the prospect of Nate being a big dog, to Roy not being bothered that Nate made an inappropriate move on Keeley, to him not receiving an espresso machine. The latter for me is a great example of jokes having consequences, which Jason has spoken about a lot. It feels like a joke and is essentially played that way in the scene, but you know this is the kind of stuff that is ripping Nate in two. The picture that Nate gave Ted for Christmas is next to Ted's picture of his son at home, which we get a glimpse of as Ted is getting ready for the funeral and before his panic attack. I recall this being one of Bill Lawrence's ideas, a typically emotional beat from a while ago. 
and it devastated me when he first told me about it. Also, when Brendan Hunt casually told me their plans to have the Believe sign being ripped in two, I fell on the floor and screamed. And then he gives, uh, see, he gives, you know, just a bunch of thank yous to the awesome writing team that they have. And thanks everybody for watching and for the support. So the Nate story, just going over a lot of these things, he has a lot of interesting points here that he talks about. The, to me, and it's it's interesting to watch how this character has evolved from the very beginning. Because when we see him at first, he's just he's an outcast. He's you know just very picked on, and you just feel so bad for him. And Ted gives him the attention, and because you know that's that's Ted. That's his personality. He wants everybody to be included. He doesn't care who you are, what your job is. He, you're, you're part of the team. He sees everybody as part of the team. And he includes Nate right off the bat. And, of course, Nate continues to still get picked on at times. And they try to figure out, they work around trying to get that to stop. And to me, it's, it's interesting to just see how this character that was so beloved at the beginning has now turned into just such a hated character now. Cause when you look at Twitter, Twitter is just full. I see a lot of common posts of, you know, like we were rooting for you. We loved you and you turned into this and now we can't wait for you to get yours, you know, and that, that kind of a thing. And you see a lot of that going on. And to me, watching, and of course, Nate's story is that from his point of view, he sees it as Ted abandoned him. And he, and you see a lot of things where he feels undervalued. And of course, Nate gets upgraded to being an assistant coach on the team. And, and it's something that helps him. And you see like the boost that it gives and you see the moment to where he made that play call. And, of course, Twitter's just flooded. And he gets the credit in the media, you know, when Ted was out of the game. And he gets all the credit for it. And you just see how much it boosts him, reading all the comments. And where he just, it's like, it's something he's never felt before. And he embraces it, and he wants more of it. And I always felt like, and you can see when it happens, when Roy is brought in as an assistant coach, you can see immediately, and it's all, and you can kind of see it too with even how they were framing the shot a lot of times with a lot of the scenes, is that you could see that Nate looks like an outsider almost, or you can tell that, it's like you can sense the feeling that he feels like an outsider to where Roy is coming in and his he's feeling pushed out a little bit now because Roy's in here and he's such a superstar, of course. And now Nate feels pushed out and feels abandoned. And we also, you know, they talked about in that shot uh, where we see the picture that was of him that he had, and it's not in his office anymore, but it meant so much to Ted that he put it in his house. You know, we see that later on 
in the episode that it was up setting up on his house that it meant so much to him from there. But Nate doesn't see that. Nate just sees that it's gone from the office. And I just saw the whole thing with uh, with Roy coming in that that he saw that as a threat. And we just see so many things of like Nate evolving. And, you know, he talked about the spitting to where he sees like some of the things he does, like he takes his parents to the restaurant and he wants this front table and he can't even basically be heard or even be taken seriously on, on this, like on his desire to want that front table to where they even coach him on how to be tougher you know, where it's like, you've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to go in there like you own the place and make sure that you stand up and be strong and make it to where they can't say no to you. And he does do all that. And he and we have the moment to where he tries to get that done and he gets shut down and he goes in the bathroom and he rises up and he's just like, OK, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go do this now. And I gotta, I've got to be this different person. And he looks at himself in the mirror, and that's, and he goes out there and he gets the table, and he gets, he's demanding, and he's like a different person. And we see that happen, and we saw the moment to where he goes to get the clothes and everything, and Keeley's with him, and he kisses Keeley, and. You know, and she pretty well waves it off like yeah, it's, it's okay because he's like immediately like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. She's like, no, really, it's okay, and she knows Nate, and she's she's forgiving of Nate immediately, and then Nate goes in the bathroom, and he's just I can't believe I just did this, and he looks at himself in the mirror, and that's when he spits at himself in the mirror. And that could be read two different ways. Is he spitting in the mirror of that he's spitting in the the face of the person that he's become? Or is he spitting in the face of the person that he was? Where it's just like, this this is me now. And enough with you, weakling. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Or, you know, you can go either way with that. But we have just seen so much evolution of this character, especially in season two. And we have the moment in the game, the last game, to where they're losing and he's just furious over it because they're and they're using his play. And they talked about maybe we need to not use the play. And he's saying we don't we don't need to do the play anymore because they're not good enough basically to do this play to which they're like, what's this guy's problem? You know, and and even on the field, when they're achieving and they're coming back, Nate's sitting on the bench and he doesn't care and doesn't want anything to do with this and eventually walks off and walks off the field, walks out of there. So. Of course, what ends up happening, we get like the big Darth Vader reveal at the end to where we learn that Rupert is back in as an owner. He's got a different team. And it shows the shot from behind where he's talking to the coach. And the coach turns around and it's Nate. And he talks about, you know, he talked about in that post to where like the eye, like his eyes, you know, where his eyes are out, where it's all the... The light in his eyes are gone out. That's what he said specifically. 
And that was a great scene because that was like, oh, he's Darth Vader now. <laughs> to where he feels this is what has happened and he's he's gone. To me, it feels like, and I'm going to be very curious to see how this plays out. Does Is this going to end in a redemption story? Is Nate going to come around? Or is he going to double down and go the other direction and just be pure evil from here to where he's just going to spiral out? And there's very different... I've seen different opinions on this, and that's what's so great about this show, is that there's people that do buy into the opinion of that Nate was overlooked and that this is what has got him here. And then there's the other side. And the side that I looked at it as was they built a monster and they got a monster. <laughs> they unknowingly made a monster. You know, just with the way things happen and just, I guess, with how he evolved, they basically created a monster out of him unknowingly. That's how I've looked at it as I've watched the show. That's kind of my view and like my take on it is that they just created a monster and now they've got to deal with the monster. So season three is setting up for to be a heavy, heavy hitter here with because this is going to be great TV to watch to see Nate leading the charge of the evil empire here against <laughs> against uh, Ted and the crew here. This is this is going to be awesome stuff. So I thought I would go back also and just kind of talk about some of the highlights from season two as well. Just some of the just random things over over this season. Of course, the big story besides Nate has been Ted and the panic attacks that he is happening. And I really like how they've done this with covering, like making panic attacks such an important part of seeing what people deal with with panic attacks and all. I thought that was very interesting how they do it because it's it's so because you see the character of Ted Lasso and he's so positive and he's just so happy and just wants the best for everybody and he's just that human being that you want everybody to be you know but deep down inside he's tortured he's going through this divorce and he's just had these bad things happen to him and on the outside, everything looks good with him. But on the inside, you know, there's all of this built up and his body is releasing it with all these panic attacks and everything. And I really like, like the attention that they're putting on this for people that suffer with panic attacks. It's something that is going to make people aware and see it from like their perspective of what's going on. And this has been, you know, and again, that was something too with the Nate story was that, you know, Ted left the game at one point because he was having a panic attack and Nate turned on Ted by being the leak because the story that they had put out there was that, oh, he wasn't feeling good 
uh, stomach was bothering him or whatever. And that was the story that they'd put out in the media. And everybody just kind of let it go for the most part. And then Trent Krim from The Independent. You always have to say Trent Krim from The Independent. <laughs> I, love, I love that. And he text messages Ted and tells him, this is the story I'm running tomorrow. You had a panic attack during the game, and that's why you left that game. And he says, my source, I'm not, I really shouldn't be tell you, telling you this, but my source was Nate. And that's that clue that Ted's like, oh my goodness, he, I trusted him and he's turned on me, you know, basically. So that was another big thing with the Nate turn was that that had happened. So Ted's having to deal with all this out in the media and he's trying to coach and win these games. So that was a big, big story with with this season was how that was playing out and just all that Ted's dealing with, trying to be a father overseas and the divorce, you know, that he doesn't want to get the divorce. He loves his wife, you know, and and he's all these miles away, and he's having to do all these things virtually, whether it's Christmas or whatever. And he's dealing with the stress of the coaching, and he's trying to just do everything he can do. And his body with these panic attacks is just breaking down. So, yeah, it's uh, that's been the major story as far, and then it played into the Nate situation. But let's hit some of these other big things here as far as with the finale. Keely got the news that a company was wanting to finance her with running her own PR agency. So she had to deal with how trying to figure out how to deal with breaking that news to Rebecca, who took it great. She took it great. You do this. Go do your thing. Sam decided to stay with Richmond after he was trying to be pulled away by a uh, Ghanaian billionaire who was wanting to buy a club and was wanting to sign Sam to play for him. Uh, I love that Sam stayed. I really like that character a lot. Just, just been such a great, likable character from right from the beginning. Just so many good stories with him over the season. I thought the thing with him and Rebecca was just kind of out of nowhere. I don't know. I just kind of felt a little blindsided with that when they were doing the you know, the uh, dating app match thing. And that was not what I was expecting for either one of them on who was messaging who, you know. But I don't know. I just, I wasn't crazy about that storyline as much with Sam and Rebecca. I don't know. It just, I just felt like it just kind of came out of left field a little bit. But I don't know. I mean, it was fine, I guess. But just not something I was really that crazy about. But they, uh, they did a good job, I guess, with uh, just kind of playing that out. The reveal of it was pretty funny with how they figured out that they were messaging one another. So Anthony Head, as a supervillain playing Rupert, it took me some getting used to. I'm still having kind of a tough time with it because uh, I'm so used to seeing... Because, okay, Anthony Head, of course, was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And ironically played Rupert <laughs> on that too, Rupert Giles. 
when I was watching that episode and I saw Anthony Head's name at the bottom, I just happened to be, I just happened to look down and was, just saw the text and I saw Anthony Head. It's like, is that the Anthony Head I know? And, um, and sure enough, he pops up on screen and he is. That was the Anthony Head I know. And it is really taking some getting used to for me to get normalize him playing the super villain because I've never seen him play a villain <laughs> kind of role before so it's really taking some time for me to uh to get used to that he's really good in that role because I really can't stand him <laughs> so it just tells you how good he is in that role but it's very interesting to watch him play something so completely opposite of what his character was like on Buffy it's very interesting Jamie Tart's redemption story, where he returns to the team, gets humbled with having to try to fit back in with the team. His attitude was going to have to be pulled into check. And just, I love seeing how that has evolved to where he just was so unlikable in season one and left the team, beat the team, and... And even we had the story at the end of season one to where he even used Ted's advice to beat them. That was something that got evolved too. I thought that was cool. So he comes back this season to the team and he's too nice this time to where Roy and the coaches, they're all telling him that he's going to have to be the old Jamie Tart at times. But he's, he's like, well, when, when do I know how to do it? How will I know? How will I know when to do it? We'll give you a signal. Well, how will I know the signal? You'll know. The, the signal was a middle finger from the coaches from the sideline. And Jamie was like, oh, okay, got it. Let, let's go. Let's roll. So this, that was pretty funny. And the Phil Dunster that plays Jamie Tart, he was actually on Rich Eisen show last week. And they talked about the scene where he hit the big kick and that big moment. And he said that it was actually him that did that. He's like, it wasn't a, wasn't a stunt double. It wasn't anything like computer. He's like, I actually kicked that long from like myself. And they showed the video of when they were shooting that scene and you can see him landing it. So he was he was laughing about it, saying, I want to make sure I get credit for that because it was pretty awesome. Um the Beard After Hours episode, I did not like this episode at all. Uh and it seems like I'm not alone in that. Cause because we left with such a big cliffhanger on the previous episode, and I was ready to roll in, and then we just got kind of thrown into this random like sidetrack episode of uh of beard and how his night went from there and and i was also really trying to hurry up because i was binging that week too to where i was trying to get caught up before the finale and i was gonna make it but after i got done i just thought man i could have skipped this episode because there really wasn't anything that happened in that episode that like continued to the rest of the story except him maybe getting beat up by you know Jamie's dad and you know the fight that ensued there and of course the one guy showed up that he had met earlier in the night uh in the one woman's apartment but 
It just reminded me of like when shows will suddenly do a noir episode. Uh, anytime I see a show do noir, it's I just cringe because I know every single favorite show of mine always has to do one of those episodes. And every time they do it, it's a filler episode. So whenever I see the picture go black and white, I go, oh no, I'm not going to get anything out of this episode. It's going to be completely filler. It's like it happened on Smallville. It happened on One Tree Hill. It happened on just endless amounts of these shows. Anytime I see that, I just automatically go, I'm getting nothing out of this episode and I might as well skip ahead to the next one. And that's what it felt like for here. Because I was so ready to find out what was going to happen after that last cliffhanger. And then I ended up in like this, you know, however however long, wasn't it like an hour episode? I don't know how long it was, but I just felt like I got detoured off into this alternate universe here. And then we got reeled back in for the next episode. But I just wasn't a fan of the Beard After Hours episode. One thing I learned was there's a new Wembley Stadium. That was one thing I learned. Uh, what's funny is Ted, because when they walked into Wembley Stadium, I was like, oh man, this is where this took place and that took place. And I was looking around, like trying to see what it looked like and thinking of the memories of it. And then Ted says, uh, oh yeah, I remember this place. I watched Queen play in this in this place, and I forgot what I forgot what the concert was that they played. Was it Live Aid? Or I can't remember what it was. And uh, but I'd seen that too on MTV, and that was one of the things that was in my head. Where I was like, "Oh, this is where Queen played," and uh, just remember different sporting events that took place there. So I was actually of the same mentality that Ted had. And then they say, "Yeah, that's old Wembley. This this is new Wembley." It's like, oh. But I, and me and Ted learned at the same time that uh, there's a new Wembley. <laughs> so I had no idea that there was a new Wembley Stadium. It was just kind of funny, funny thing. So that's what I learned from over here across the pond, <laughs> over here in the United States, not knowing that there was a new Wembley Stadium instead of an old Wembley. Sharon being brought in as the sports psychologist and helping the players through the season I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that storyline at first, but I really enjoy. ended up enjoying it. I liked, it was fun to see like how she was able to help them out and help Danny get his love of football back and, and like the evolution of how she was able to help Ted, but then how he was also able to help her and they formed this, they formed this friendship, this bond, you know, to where they even hung out before she left town and then, she tried to leave without telling him goodbye, and he was really upset about that, and found her, and then he ended up leaving her before she could say goodbye. So it was like they played off of each other there. There's good stuff with that. Roy, man, I like that character. He's fun. <laughs> I laugh out loud so much at that character. I like the stuff with him and his niece, Hannah, uh, it was really funny, like her picking up some of his habits. I thought that was fun. Uh, Trent Krim of the Independent, again, no longer with the Independent. It's like, do we see him again? Or was that his farewell in the parking lot? Because again, you know, he 
because there's the moment to where Ted's in the post-game press conference and he looks over and there's an empty chair and he's like, well, where's Trent? And that's what we're all thinking too. Like, oh, where, where's Trent? Is Trent okay? And then we learn later on where we see Trent talk to Ted and he's just like, yeah, I got fired because I gave away my source and they weren't happy that I did that. So I lost my job because of it. And just that was a really powerful scene. I hope we see Trent in something in season three. Another guest star I really liked was Nora. I thought that was fun. That was Rebecca's goddaughter. I thought she was a really fun character to bring in there. And I'm hoping they continue to bring her. And then, of course, that was Rebecca's best friend was Nora's mom. And I really hope they continue to bring those characters in and out, maybe hopefully in season three as well, because I really enjoy when they do that. They bring some fun to the show as well. So, I mean, as far as the show, does it go beyond season three? That is going to be our question. Because the plan was for the show to go three seasons. They had this story laid out basically in three acts here on how this was going to go. They had it mapped out to go three seasons with these characters and knew where they were going with everything. With this show having so much popularity, the question has come up on whether they decide to extend the show and make it go other seasons, or do they just say, nope, this is the story we were going to tell and we're just going to end it. That's something we're going to have to keep an eye on to see what they do from here. And they basically said if it if it does go longer, it's going to be a different story. Because they had this particular story set for these three seasons. So if it does go beyond a season four, it's basically going to be starting kind of new, you know. Because season three is going to be the final act of how this thing was laid out and mapped out to go. So, I don't know. I don't know if they... I don't know what they do because the show is very, very popular. What's interesting is this show was passed over by some other places too that did not decide to pick it up. And Apple TV Plus went for it and look at the success of it. And it's really brought another popular show over to Apple TV Plus and they are wanting they haven't they're they don't get as a lot of attention as far as the streaming services they've had some hits on there but they I don't feel like they get much attention with Apple TV Plus so this is a huge thing for them so I could totally see them wanting to try to keep the show around. I mean, it's getting awards as far as nominations and everything. So I don't know. It's going to be something to keep an eye on, but looks like next summer will be season three for Ted Lasso. Man, it's going to be a hard, long wait (laughs) for season three, but I love the show a lot. And we're going to have to see what happens with Nate from here. Does he double down? And just go out as super villain destroyer? Or do we see see him come around and see some light come back into him? Or is he just too long gone and you got to destroy the monster? Or do you try to pull the light and 
get the light back in from the monster into the monster and get the darkness out of him. I don't know. We're going to find out though. I'm excited to find out. That is it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. God bless. And I hope you have a great week. Thank you.